carrying on in, in Esther this morning. Um, Esther chapter 7, if you've got your Bible, page 414. 414. You can, um, you can learn a lot about a person when you see how they respond when they are wronged. I mean, whether you know that, but when someone's kind of hard done by or you do something to upset someone or anger someone, you can learn a lot about their character and who they are um, by just observing how they respond to, to being wronged. And some of you may have, have um, noticed on Wednesday, so it was great having everyone together for, for our GCs coming together on Wednesday for prayer. But before we started prayer, there was some dark... Um, Dark things going on upstairs while I was putting the children to bed. So, um, some of you might have heard some robust conversations between Elizabeth and I and, and Micah. Uh, Micah, in, in front of his room, had found a thread at the end of his carpet. Now, in hindsight, I totally relate to this. And if it was me, I probably would have done the same thing. Micah took the thread and pulled it. And it wasn't just one of those threads that goes sideways, it was one that goes lengthways all across the carpet, right away across the hall. Elizabeth came upstairs and saw a massive part of the, the carpet missing, and obviously it's not repairable. And so the robust conversation ensued between Elizabeth and Micah and then myself and Micah, when we came up and we tried to extract the information from him, who was it who did it? Because there was tons of kids, wasn't there, around on, on Wednesday night. So Ruthie was adamant it wasn't her and she, she you know, we believe her, like she was in floods of tears. Micah was adamant it wasn't him. He usually lies, so he was the, he was the prime culprit. And we found out that it was him. He, he kind of confessed eventually it was him. And Elizabeth and I gave him down the banks. There was, there was a bit of shouting. Um, there was a bit of firm discipline. Um, his door was closed, which is the ultimate threat for Micah. If you've ever babysat, he always has his door open. Well, his door was closed that evening. And he had sweets banned for the whole week. So even today, if you going to lunch later please when he asks you which he will don't give him any sweets because he's not allowed any sweets and he's been kind of we brought up a few times through the week just to remind him of um, how he's upset us particularly how he lied to us but also how he's ruined our carpet as well and in that moment we wanted him to to kind of know the the guilt of what he's done he's done us wrong he wants him to feel a bit of shame as well in what he, he had done we isolated him, put him in his room, closed the door, and we punished him with removing his suite. And, and of course, we're not kind of totally cruel parents. We're not continuing this, this discipline for this foreseeable. And I would hope that probably most of us in this room would probably have done the same. It's interesting, if you'd have been a fly on the wall just observing Elizabeth and I and how we responded to being wronged, you would have learned a lot about our character. In chapter 7 of, of Esther this morning, chapter 7 is going to encourage us to look towards seeing the character of God. Now remember, you don't even see God in this book. That's the profound beauty of this book, is that he's not even mentioned. But it is impossible to read it, and particularly read this chapter without our eyes being lifted and, and our gaze being shifted towards the character of God. And what we will see when we look at the character of God this morning is profound beauty. We will see this morning that God is a God who is, who is justifiably and righteously wrathful against humanity. Like he moves against humanity because of our sin and our offenses towards him. But at the same time, he is full of mercy. He's simultaneously 
a wrathful God and a God who is full of mercy. We do naturally as we come into this world stand condemned before God. Like we are, are to be objects of God's wrath because of our sin, because of our offenses against him. The right and just punishment for that is, is God's anger being poured out on us. That's what wrath means, his anger being poured out on us. And, and the way that his anger, his wrath is satisfied is through our death. But at the same time, he is rich in mercy. Elizabeth read to us from Lamentations this morning, his mercies are new every morning. His, his love is steadfast. And his mercies are new every morning. That's what we're going to see in chapter 7 this morning. The wrath of God and the mercy of God. Let me just recap quickly uh, where we are up to in, in the book. We kind of move through chapter by chapter. We've been introduced to different characters as we've gone through. First, we're introduced to King Ahasuerus, a, a, a king who loves uh, pleasure, loves um, wine, loves parties, loves, loves sex. He's just indulging in his position as king over the Persian Empire. And we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. We're told that these are, are of God's covenant people. They are Jews. They are part of God's promised people, promised to Abraham and Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 12. They were part of God's covenant that God was going to bring to himself a people under his rule and reign. And we find them at a time where they've been exiled. God is judging his people for their sin. He has removed them from the promised land, the land that they were promised through Abraham. They've been exiled, removed. They're under the rule of a foreign god, but he has allowed someone to go back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the, temp the temple. But Mordecai and Esther, for some reason, have remained. And we see Esther being elevated to the position of queen. There's this search party that goes out for, for a new queen, for King Ahasuerus. He's kind of had enough of Queen Vashti. He's filled with kind of anger if she doesn't do what he wants him to do. And so he finds a new queen and Queen Esther is promoted to this, this uh, uh, position in the land. But we see, and the, the writer wants us to be really sure, we see in chapter two that she keeps her identity hidden. She doesn't tell the king that she's a Jew. She doesn't tell the king that she's one of God's covenant people. She hides it from the king. And then we see as the narrative goes on, Mordecai, who is Esther's uh, cousin, discovers a plot to kill the king. And this information gets to the king. And we expect the king to elevate Mordecai into a position of, 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 of honor, yet he doesn't. Instead, a new character is introduced, a character called Haman, who is a picture of the enemy of God's people. Haman is elevated. And, and as Haman comes in and out of, of the king's palace, there is an order that everyone would bow down, yet there is one man who doesn't bow down, Mordecai. To bow down for him would be to break God's <coughs> commandment. And so he refuses to. Haman's filled with rage and he puts out this decree across the land to destroy not just Mordecai, but every single one of his people. All of the Jews are to be annihilated, destroyed. And then in chapter 5 and chapter 6, you see a hinge point in the story. Ryan reminded us this week, that, that uh, last week, that, that the story starts to, to, to flip between God's people seeming to be in, in a place of, of darkness, of, of destruction. It's now God's people starting to be elevated. And what you see now is the story inverts on itself. So Haman puts out this decree. He wants Mordecai to be hanged because he has wronged him, because he hasn't bowed down to him. But then you start to see things unraveling for Haman. So let's just pick up the narrative in 
Esther chapter 6, verse 14, and then we'll read through chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I, my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, and we have sung this morning, that you are a God who is high and lifted up. We recognize that you are a sovereign God and we have seen that week after week in this book that you are a God who is always at work at work for the good of your people and for your glory we thank you that that you have shown us the fullness of your character by sending your son Jesus we thank you that you came and you lived amongst us you put on human flesh you you experienced what it is to, to live as a man yet without sin we thank you for your perfect life we thank you for your death on the cross we thank you for leaving us with your spirit and holy spirit we thank you that you are here now we ask that you would guide us towards truth lead us towards seeing the sun towards seeing the gospel is more beautiful than we know it now we ask these things in jesus name amen chapter six and seven uh, chapter five and six you you see esther is, is given an opportunity to come to the king and to start to, to work for the release of the Jews or work for the relief of the Jews. The king honors Mordecai. He remembers Mordecai just, just coincidentally as it, would see, as it would appear in the book. He, he, he remembers as he is sleeping that, that someone has done him this great good. He reads it in the book of Chronicles and he's remembered of Mordecai and Mordecai has is, is begun to be elevated and Haman is starting to see that things are unraveling for him. Haman has to parade Mordecai out on a horse. It's so comical as you read it. I was reading it again and you just can't, you can't help but laugh like this. This is everything that Haman would have, would have hated. This is the worst of, of circumstances. He's the one who should be being paraded through the city. And yet Mordecai is the one who's elevated and he is the one who has to lead him out. 
things are starting to unravel for him. And while he is still speaking to his friends, kind of pouring out his heart, he's so angry and confused at what is going on. The king's servants come and get him, bring him to the feast that Esther has laid on. There's been two feasts already. This is the, the last feast that we read that Esther convenes with Haman and King Ahasuerus. First of all, Haman thinks that he's kind of someone special, that he's been invited, but now his mind must be racing, thinking about what's going to happen next. King Ahasuerus knows that Esther wants something of him. And he offers it, I'll give, you, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. But that isn't what she wants. And she opens up. Remember up to now, her identity has been hidden. Chapter 2, the writer goes through great pain to tell us that she's a Jew, that, that she is a descendant of Saul, that, that that is who she is, that is her identity. Mordecai says, just, just hide it for now. We know that she is one of God's people, yet she has hidden it from the king. But now she shows her cards. She tells the king that her people have been sold into destruction. She quotes directly from Haman's decree. She, she quotes and says that they've been led to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. See the significance of what Esther is doing? These are my people, she's saying. She's no longer hiding behind a facade of, of, of her exterior appearance. She is identifying with her people. These are my people. My people who are being led to be destroyed. And remember we said that, that this decree that has gone out to kill the Jews is, is undoable. Like the king's seal is on it. It cannot be undone. It cannot be revoked. So, so Esther by identifying with her people is putting herself under this penalty of death. She steps towards her people with great risk. She identifies with her people with great risk. Now, it would have been so easy for Esther to remain in the king's palace, to kind of live a separated life from her people, to kind of maintain this facade, to be protected from this decree that's gone out, but she doesn't. She puts everything on the line. She puts her life on the line by identifying with her people. In revealing her identity, she is literally putting herself under the penalty of death. Folks, I hope you can see what is going on here. If we just zoom out for a minute and see the bigger picture of what is going on in the whole of God's redemptive plan of everything that we read through the Old Testament to the New Testament, where it is all leading, where it is all pointing towards. Hopefully you've seen already just in the, the last few chapters, just in this book, you've seen shadows of how God is interacting with his people. You've seen pictures and types of how God is moving and working with his people. So you see here, Esther lays aside her privilege. She steps into the mess to intercede on behalf of her people. Can you see what's going on here? God does exactly the same for his people. Ever since Adam and Eve's sin has plagued humanity, humanity has been separated from God. We have been cursed with death because of our sin. But not desiring any to die, God sends his son. And Jesus is born a man. He puts on human flesh. Why? Why does God do that? So he can identify with us. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came in flesh and blood with, with, with bodies just like you and I so that he could identify with us. Identify with us who are sinners. Yet he remains sinless. See, what Esther does here is so powerful. Like she puts aside her privilege. She steps into the mess. She puts her life on the line. And what God does in sending his son is stunning. 
Like, think about it. God's sending his son to identify with his people. Think about, so I think about me and I think about who I am and I think about my sin that, that I know of and all the shadows in my life that I know of and all the darkness in my life that I know of, all the selfishness in my life that I know of. Everything that I do day after day that is, is in opposition to God, that is just chasing after my desires and, and my wants. And I think, who would want to identify with me? If someone truly knew who I was, would they really want to identify with me? Would they really want to come to my side and defend me? If they truly knew the inner workings of my heart, if they truly knew my sin, if they truly knew everything that, that, I, that I was kind of uh, doing this week that was working against the things of God, that was working against them, would they truly want to come to my side and defend me? Would they really want to petition for me? Would they really want to intercede for me? And yet that is exactly what God does. That's what he does in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is identifying with me. You see in God here a display of what kind of God he is. You see the love that he shows in doing that. And the echoes of the gospel don't stop there. The, the narrative goes on. Esther tells King Ahasuerus about, about the plan to kill her people. As we said, she quotes directly from Haman's decree. Remember Haman is sitting right there. He's taken all of this in. You can just imagine his, his mind is just, just going 100 miles an hour. He knows what's going on here. He knows that Esther knows. The Jews have been sold to death. Esther knows all of the details. Esther drives home the significance to King Ahasuerus of what this means for him as a king. Like this isn't just a few hundred people that are being sold or, or, or a few people being sold as slaves. Like this is over a million people who are going to be removed from your kingdom. Like the impact on your kingdom just from an economic point of view is significant. This is a great evil that is being done. And then in verse 5 she stops. As if there's like a pregnant pause in the narrative. She says, she says, this decree has gone out to annihilate, to destroy my people. And then in verse five, the king turns and says to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Haman is sitting right there. God, imagine the tension in that room. And Haman knows what kind of king this is, right? He's seen, he's been in, in the, the wine, kind of the drinking games with King Ahasuerus. He's seen how quickly he can flip. He's seen Big Than and Teresh be impaled on the stake. Queen Esther says, my people are about to be annihilated. Who's done this? He's been found out. Queen Esther turns to King Ahasuerus foe and an enemy it's him it's Haman the one who King Ahasuerus has elevated the one who he has put in this high position the one who he spent the last couple of days whining and dining with you see the king filled with wrath like honestly, you read it through and the king doesn't really know what to do. Like he's, he's angry, he's filled with wrath and, and he can't deal with it. He, he literally walks out of the room and goes into the garden. Now don't miss the irony of what's going on here. Like King Ahasuerus, this is his decree. Like he's, he's seemingly blind to all of this. You can't see it. Like it's his seal on this decree. But, but in this moment, 
He can't see his own guilt. He's just filled with rage. He's filled with wrath. He's filled with anger towards Haman. (coughs) Goes out into the garden and immediately Haman pleads for mercy from Queen Esther. As would have been custom at the time, he kind of throws himself at her feet. Like that's what you would have done if you were pleading for mercy for someone. He throws himself at the queen's feet. But, and, and again, just see the sovereignty of God in this. At the same time, he has thrown himself on the queen. The king walks back in the room and the king assumes that he's trying to assault his wife. He snaps before he can even finish what he is saying. A servant takes a cover and covers Haman's face. King Hasuera still has no plan what he's going to do next, but for a servant to kind of quickly jump into the narrative, in verse 9, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, says to the king, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words say the king is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Then the king replies, Hang him on that. The very thing, the very eventuality that Haman wanted Mordecai to experience is now being turned onto him. The very words that he hoped to hear about Mordecai, hang Mordecai on the gallows for disrespecting me, are now being spoken over him. Can you see just the the dramatic irony in the narrative here? The very stake, the very gallows that he has built, now he is being hung on it. And at the end of the chapter, you get one line which you can easily kind of skip over and just move on to chapter 8 and just carry on with the narrative. But it's loaded with meaning. Then the wrath of the king abated. The wrath of King Ahasuerus abated. Literally, that word abated there means subsided or or relents. It's, It's the same word that is used... In Genesis chapter 8, when when God floods the the earth in judgment and then the waters subside, as a sign of God's judgment being complete on the earth, the waters abated. You see that same word here, the wrath of the king abated. It means means his, his anger towards Haman has now relented, but it's taken Haman's death to satisfy the anger of King Ahasuerus. That is what the Bible calls propitiation. Propitiation, it's an act of propitiation. Propitiation literally means to avert anger through the payment, specifically in this case, through the payment of death. Haman's death propitiates the wrath of King Ahasuerus. To avert the anger through the payment of one's death. Folks, again, can you see through the whole of this story how it was pointing to someone else? You see how the story is pointing forward towards Jesus. That is exactly what Jesus came to do for us. Like Jesus comes and puts on human flesh to identify with his people. But then he also comes to die for us. He comes to propitiate our sin. He comes to avert the anger of God, the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God towards us. He comes to avert it away from us through his death. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 7 verse 17, therefore, this is talking about Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers. That's him identifying with us. That's him coming incarnate, him him putting on flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
That is why Jesus came. That is why he identified with us. That is why he put on flesh and blood so that he might stand in our place as a human, as a man, like us in every way, yet sinless, and make propitiation for our sins. To satisfy the anger of God to avert the anger of God through the payment of his death, to subside, to relent, to abate the wrath of God that is directed at us. I wonder as we read through chapters 1 to 7, kind of where we find ourselves in the narrative. Who is it that we identify with? For us who are Christians, like, like we should identify ourselves with God's people. That's who we are. We are part of God's covenant people. Like that's where we should find ourselves in the narrative, but we should also be reminded that that wasn't always the case. We, we couldn't always have claimed that, that we are God's people. Like at one point we were all Haman. We were all Haman in the story. We were all people who were opposed to God. We were all people who were the, literally the foes and the enemies of God with our backs turned to God, working against him, not working for him. And if that is the case in the narrative, the gallows are ours. Like that's where we should be headed. Yet unlike King Ahasuerus, our God, our King, his wrath is pure. His wrath is justified. And we deserve every drop. Yet Jesus, perfect Jesus, puts on flesh and blood, takes our punishment and abates the wrath of God for us. It is him that is impaled on a tree instead of us. It is him that, that God's wrath is poured out on instead of us. It is him who satisfies the wrath of the Father for our sin. We get a good measure of the character of God when we look at how he responds to being wronged here, don't we? When he is wronged, when he is wronged, when we sin against him, when we work against him, when we kind of turn our back on him, he has got every right to punish us. He's got every right to send us to death. He's got every right to pour out his wrath on us. He's got every right to just do away with us. Yet he moves towards us, sends his son, he identifies with us, and then he dies for us. We see the character of God in that. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4. In this is love, John says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isn't it beautiful that we see God as a God who is rightfully and justifiably wrathful towards sin? Yet at the same time, we are able to say that he is a God of love and mercy in that he has sent his son sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, to avert his anger away from us. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us as we kind of see God in that way? If we know God as a God who is, is a God of wrath, who, who is angry against sin, but is also a God of mercy, that should affect how we respond in our sin. So just think of Haman for a moment, to so think of what we see in, in his situation. You look at Haman and, and the king sees his sin. He sees his wrongdoing. He's filled with wrath. The king is filled with wrath and that wrath is not abated until Haman is dead. For unbelievers, God's wrath is directed at them. 
God is, God is angry at them for their sin and rightfully angry. Death is coming, physical and spiritual, but Jesus has made a way for the unbeliever to escape. He has made a way by sending his son to identify with them, to take their sin and in exchange to give them his life. That means they can go free from death and sin. For us who are Christians, that is true for us now. We have been freed from sin and death. That is true, but more often than not, we know that sin enslaves us. We'd be lying if we said it didn't. It still kind of holds on to us that even though we are new creations, there are remnants of our old life that still live in us, that still entice us towards sin. And I think we'd also be lying if we, we said that often we, we, aren't, we aren't easy to bring those things into the light. That often we're fearful of bringing our sin into the light. Often we're fearful of confessing our sin. I think the application here for us is, is if, if we can see the character of God as we see in this chapter here, if we can see him as a God, a God who is, who is wrathful but also is merciful towards his people, then we can be people who can come and confess. We can see that we don't need to hide from him. Firstly, we can see, as you see in this chapter, that he already knows. He knows. Like, we can come and confess him because he already knows our sin. Like, you think of just that, that picture of, of, of Esther and Haman in the room. Like, she's sitting there, and she knows everything that he has done. And how uncomfortable he is. Yeah, we don't have to be like that with God. God is fully aware of the scope and scale of all of our sin. He knows it. He sees everything. He knows our darkness. He knows our sin. He knows our offenses better than we know them. He knows them. He's still will, willing to identify with us. He's still willing to call us his sons and his daughters. He is still willing to delight in us. He still loves us. And so we can come and confess because he knows us. And at the same time, he loves us. We can come and confess as well because we can know that he is a merciful God who will not punish us. Like we don't need to be fearful of bringing our sin into the light. We don't need to be fearful of coming and confessing of our sin because we know that he is a merciful God who will not punish us. Why? Because that punishment has already been taken. It has already been propitiated. It has already been carried away. So any sin that we confess has already been forgiven. We need to know that. That should take away any fear of coming and confessing. So any, any condemnation that we feel, when we, when we remember our sin, when we sit in our sin, any condemnation that we feel, we need to know that is not from God. That isn't from Him. So we can come and confess. How do we confess? Well, just with a, a simple prayer, just four quick ways, that, four quick things that we can do as we pray prayers of confession. We, we can come with a humble and a contrite heart. That means coming, coming really mean in what we are saying, not just coming kind of out of right and, and, and out of ritual, but coming because we, we know that, that, that we should. Humbling ourselves before God, not elevating ourselves and thinking that we are beyond this, that we don't need to confess, or we've done it once so we don't need to come again. Humbling ourselves before God in prayer with a contrite heart. And then acknowledge our sin, specifically acknowledge the specific sin in which we have offended God. Like tell him what it is, God... God, I've done this against you. Thirdly, affirmation of God's character. As we pray, remember and, and tell him of his character. 
Not that he doesn't know, but that we need reminded. God, I've done this, but I know that you are a merciful God. And as you pray, have assurance of forgiveness. You've already been forgiven. Folks, we should come and confess. Come and confess through prayer and we should do this quickly. We shouldn't kind of stew in our sin and just let it sit there for for hours and hours and and days and days and weeks and weeks. We should frequently come to him in confession. We should make it a habit. Like as I've been reading, I was saying to Mark the other day, I've been reading um, just through the the first few books in the Bible and it seems to be like in in Old Testament Testament Israel, they had daily habits of doing this. Three times a day they they would just set time aside and they would come and they would come before God in prayer. Why shouldn't we do the same? I wonder when the last time it was that you came towards God in confession. Can I encourage us to make it a habit as often as we sin? Or at least make it like the last thing that you do in the day. To look back on the day and just think of the ways that you have offended God and come with a humble and contrite heart, acknowledge your sin, affirm his character and pray with assurance of forgiveness. Folks, we fall short every day, which means we should be confessing of our sin every day, making it a daily habit. Why? Why do we need to confess? Why do we even need to do this? Well, just quickly, firstly, because it's obedience to what God commands us to do. He tells us to. He tells us to come and confess our sin to him and also confess to one another. Like, let's not be too proud just to keep this between us and God. Like, share this with your brothers and sisters. Share this with your spouses. So firstly, we, we, we confess of our sin because it's a walk of an act of obedience. Secondly, it reminds us that we have been cleansed. It reminds us of, of the propitiating work of the cross that Jesus has cleansed us. So often in our sin, we can be convinced that we are, we are someone who we're not. Like that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to deceive us and say, oh, you've done this thing, which means that, that, that you are this, or you, you are this, or you're not that. And when we come in confession to God, it reminds us of who we are. We are sinners who have been cleansed by the power of God. It reminds us that we are cleansed. It reminds us that we are forgiven. And the forgiveness that was bought for us at the cross was once and for all. We don't have to keep coming to God, pleading for his forgiveness. He has forgiven us at the cross. So we come out of obedience. We come to be reminded that we are cleansed, that we are forgiven. We come in confession because it restores our joy. Have you found this when you just harbor in sin? And you're just kind of sitting on it and it just festers. And it, and it brings you just into, into places of darkness and it feels like a weight. Do you ever feel like that? But then when you confess it to God or bring it to a brother and sister in Christ, you just feel that relief. Confess to God because it's a means of us coming back to the joy of our salvation. We confess to God because it helps us walk in our identity. Brothers and sisters, we are being sanctified. We are growing in our conformity, in our likeness to Jesus Christ. And if we do not confess of our sin, we are not growing like him. He was perfect. He is perfect. And so we should examine ourselves daily. See the ways that we are offending God, confess and walk in closer ways to Jesus Christ. We should confess of our sin because it reminds us of the character of God. It reminds us that he is not an angry God who is just full of wrath. 
He's not a God who, who is kind of moving in, in, in just strange ways and, and is motivated by strange things like King Ahasuerus is. He is a God who is full of love and rich in mercy. That's what we're reminded of as we confess. Like as we confess, we confess in the knowledge that we are forgiven. And for that forgiveness to be bought, God had to be, had to be wrath, uh, fully wrathful and fully merciful towards us. We confess of our sin because it reminds us, it points us to the beautiful character of Jesus. And finally, we confess of our sin because we love God. Because we love Him. Let me take you back to the carpet incident with Micah. The thing that upset me most, the thing that kind of made me most angry was that he lied to me. Like, we can fix the carpet. I'm telling Elizabeth we can fix it. I'm not sure we can, but we'll find a way but the thing that really upset me and the thing that always upsets me with my kids is when they lie to me and the reason I think it upsets me is because it, it kind of it makes me feel that they don't they don't really love me like they say they do if they really love me they, they'd be truthful towards me they, they, they'd just tell me what's going on they wouldn't they wouldn't offend me and sin against me Folks, if we love God, we will confess to him. We won't kind of harbor things and pretend that we're someone that we're not. Our sins, remember, are often sins against one another, but they are always sins against God. And let me remind you, God loves us. He came and identified with us. He has given his life for us. And if we are not confessing our sin to him, that that means we have a small view of our sin and a small view of how we love God. If we confess our sins, it shows that we love him. It shows that we love our God who has identified with us, who has propitiated our sin, who has literally placed himself under the punishment of death, not because he had to, but because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this story. We thank you for for your sovereign work and hand that is all over it. We thank you for how you saved your people. We thank you for how you averted death away from them. We thank you for the picture that we see with the king, with Esther, with Haman of of how you deal with sin. Recognize that you are a God who is rightfully and justifiably angry towards man's sin, towards you. We recognize that we should be sitting rightfully and justifiably under your wrath, under the punishment of death. God, we thank you that for your people that punishment has been removed. Jesus, we thank you that you stepped in, that you identified with us, that you put on human flesh, you lived amongst us, you experienced what it is to be a man yet without sin. We thank you that as a human, you bore the weight of our sin at the same time fully God, fully perfect. We thank you that you have removed by your death the punishment that was due towards us. Thank you that as we look towards the cross, we look towards your life. We see the beauty of your character. We see a God who loves his people, a God who is merciful towards his people, 
a God who is willing to, to leave the, 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 the security and the comfort and the love of heaven and to step into the mess of our world and to place yourself under, under our decree of death. God, we thank you that through the death of your son we have been given life. Thank you for your spirit who, who helps us to, to be conformed each day into the likeness of the Son. And we ask, even now, Holy Spirit, as we share this meal together, that, that a work that you would do would be to just expose sin in our hearts and to give us faith and to give us assurance of our forgiveness. And as you do that, help us to confess of our sin. Help us to do that in a way that isn't fearful of of punishment but confesses out of a heart of love for you so God we're sorry for the ways in which we offend you we're sorry for the ways in which we still turn our back on you even though you have given us everything that we need to walk in righteousness and holiness would you use this meal now as a means of grace a means of reminding us that we are sinners saved by grace a means of reminding us that this day as we woke up there was new mercy for us a means of reminding us and filling us with the power of your Holy Spirit to wage war against us, to wage war against the flesh and our enemies. Father, we want to do that because we love you, because you first loved us. Father, we love you. Help us in our weakness, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. So let's do that, folks, as we take this meal. This is an opportunity to come and confess of our sin and repent and walk away so I'd encourage us just before we do to take a few minutes and we've got time just to pray with each other as well it would be a good thing if there are things which you are carrying if there are weights of sin that that you are uh, feeling are just crushing you then grab someone and pray with them please be comfortable to do that there's no shame in doing that we love one another we're for one another so I'd encourage you to do that but at the very least we all just spend a few moments just in quiet asking God by his spirit to examine our hearts and to truly and meaningfully come before him in humble and contrite hearts and confess of us to acknowledge who he is that we do be specific about our sin that, that, that we are engaging in or have engaged in like name those things before you be assured of his loving and merciful character as you do that be assured of our forgiveness which has been bought and sealed by Jesus' precious blood which was spilled for us. Remind God of who he is and the light and the forgiveness that you've received. So as we take this meal, let's remember Jesus' body which was broken for us. For the forgiveness of our sins. Let's remember that Jesus was the one who was in pain the cross, not us. Remember as we take this wine and take this juice that Jesus' blood was shed for forgiveness of our sins. Which means that we can approach God now with hearts full of assurance, not fear. Able to confess and repent of our sin. With the help of his spirit which we received through Jesus' resurrection as we receive his life. So let me just pray and give thanks for this meal. And please, I will just really encourage us, like be bold enough just to grab someone and pray can do that. Let us all spend some time in quiet before we do that and then come and meditate. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you did not count the quality of thing to be grasped. But you stepped in and you put on human flesh and lived amongst us. Thank you that you endured the cross. Thank you for the humiliation which you bore, which should have been ours. Thank you for the pain that you endured, which should have been ours. Thank you for the accusations which you took, which was so true of us. We thank you for, for the death which you suffered, which should have been ours. Jesus, we thank you that there is not a drop of wrath to be poured out on us. The cup is empty because you drank it all for us. Thank you that the Father's wrath against us has been satisfied. Completely satisfied. Through your death in the cross. Jesus, we thank you that three days later you rose again. In victory over Satan, over our sin, over your death and over our death as well. Thank you that we have received your righteousness in place of our sin. Remind us of that. Remind us of who we are as we take this meal. Holy Spirit, would you confirm our identity to us as we enjoy this meal. Help us to remember that we are sinners saved by grace. We are no longer walking in darkness, but we are walking in the kingdom of light. Remind us of our unity with one another, that we are brothers and sisters united by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, fighting for one another, loving one another. Holy Spirit, remind us that as we are united to Christ and you live in us, we have power to walk away from sin. Help us in our weakness. Help us to enjoy this meal. Help us to rightfully come before you, Father, in confession and repentance. Jesus, help our eyes to be fixed on you and Holy Spirit. Help us to depend on you fully. So we thank you for this meal. We thank you for all that it causes us to remember. It's in Jesus' name.